0: morning. Well, this feels as weird for me as it does for you. I'm not running in here and uh, I'm kind of calm. Uh, You have the chance to hear the sermon on its maiden voyage. See, typically by the time I get to you, I've already figured out what works and what doesn't. So there's ups and downs to this whole uh, uh change thing, but uh um but it'll be interesting to see how this works. It gives me the opportunity to be with you but also to be with our Spanish brothers and sisters in a little bit different way. And um and so I'm not used to preaching my sermons first in English though. And uh and, and so if I revert back to Spanish just out of habit, uh please be patient. Um, we are having, as Randy mentioned, a special contribution today. This is our Blessed to be a blessing offering uh this money this year instead of being used as we typically do for our own uh family members and people within our community we've the um, the benevolence ministry along with the elders have decided to send this contribution to the panhandle to panama city to help with hurricane relief and uh so that's where these funds will be uh will be sent if you're not prepared today to participate in that offering uh, you can do so over these next couple weeks um the Next weekend, we have a, a relief trip going, and there is a special meeting for all those who are planning on uh, going on this trip. Uh, they'll be leaving on Friday and returning on Sunday, uh, Monday, the, the, the 12th, and there's a meeting at 1230 in the uh, school library immediately after the assembly. And so if you're planning on going on that trip, please um, make that meeting, and you'll have some last-minute uh, uh, details about, uh, about the trip. Are you a fan of the Rocky movies? Uh, uh, some people are, and some people aren't, right? It's about a boxer uh, from uh, from Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had to look this up because I didn't remember. The first Rocky movie came out in 1976. Exactly. Ouch. That's that's what I thought when I saw that well, Really? You know, I, one or two of you might not even born then. Um, but, but you know, it has got to a point where it, it's it's funny because I remember the first time I saw the the very first original Rocky uh, with Adrian and you know that whole scenario there, and and, and you don't know what's going to happen and you're really rooting for Rocky. Come on, Rocky! This this kid from the streets who made his way up and he's fighting uh, the Mike Tyson figure, right? And and he's just going at it and they're going crazy. But um, but what, was it Mike Tyson? No. See, I'm getting – all – Apollo Creed, I guess. They all – all the boxers uh, look alike. No, there were a couple that didn't look like those. No, uh -uh. Uh, uh-uh. But you get to a point where – but you know the storyline. He starts off good. He gets beat up. And then he gets into this fight where he loses. I'm not giving anything away, I hope, right? I mean, you've seen, like, there's eight of them. And then he comes – and in the fight, he's getting beat up. And he looks like he's about to fall over. And then he somehow manages to come back – up and down and up and down, and our motions are just going every which way. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, and as we've been doing since um, uh, since the uh, the beginning of this series, where we're taking 16 key texts in the Bible and kind of taking a journey through the Bible. It it feels like that. Every time we make some progress and we make some ground, and it looks like the people of Israel are going to do the right thing, and and then they mess up again. And then we take a couple steps back, and then we move forward, and a couple more steps back. And it looks like the world is made beautifully, in Adam and Eve, and then uh, 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 sin enters that garden and then we have Abraham and then we have a little bit of a, a, a pitfall and then back and forth and back and forth. Every time the people of God get themselves in trouble, God comes to their rescue. Uh, things go well and then back into trouble. What's clear throughout this process, this entire process, are two things. One, human beings are incapable of overcoming by ourselves our sin problem. Left to ourselves, we will mess things up. Give us enough time. It doesn't normally take very much time. Give us enough time, we will mess things up. The second thing that's overwhelmingly clear through this entire process is that God's ability and capacity to be patient, forgive, and be full of mercy is also as equal, if not greater, than our capacity to mess up. And so every time we get to a point or God's people have gotten to a point where they're filled with despondency, they're filled with despair, they don't know what's going to happen. God finds a way to send them a message, a ray of hope, a picture of what the future with him will look like. But that's where we run into a little bit of a problem, because God wants to paint the future in ways That are true, but also that make sense to us. So he uses terms that meaning, that mean something specific to us. Uh, How would you describe the glory of a sunset to a person who was born blind? My roommate in uh, graduate school in, in the seminary, uh, uh, Randy Herndon was, was born blind. And we would try and describe colors to him. And, and red is hot and blue is cold. And, and that would help. He can understand what the senses were and the temperatures, but it still didn't really. How do you explain blue or purple? How do you explain music? Your favorite song, whether it be classical music, whether it be Latino music, whether it be rock and roll or, or folk. How do you explain music to someone who was born deaf? What does that sound feel like or how do you experience that sound well well, that's part of the problem that God faces whenever he tries to paint a picture of what our future with him will look like he's trying to use words that relate to us and sometimes we've gotten to the point where we kind of gravitate on those words and we think this is the way exactly it's going to be streets of gold (laughs) and and I don't know that we're going to see gold But that's an image that was used at one time because that was such a valuable commodity. And and so the image that Isaiah in chapter uh, in Isaiah, chapter 65, is going to paint. Is trying to create an image of a place that is kind of like the garden. We kind of in order to go forward, we kind of go backward. But it's a new and improved garden. And it isn't just one little space between two rivers and between these areas, but rather it's going to include the entire world. This is going to be a picture back of the garden before sin had marred this landscape. When we're faced with the ugliness of life, we need to take a trip back to the garden. Barbara Brown Taylor describes it this way. We need to go where there was nothing to hide and nothing to hide from, a place where nothing has ever been broken, where there were no chips or dents or scars, a place where everything is still whole and holy and pleasing to God. That's where we need to be. And in order to get there, we've been taking this journey. Isaiah chapter 65 has perhaps some of the most beautiful language that you'll find in, in all of Scripture and especially in the Old Testament. So I want to read through this text and then we're just going to kind of unpack a couple of specific ideas here. Isaiah 65 verse 17 begins, Look, this is the Lord speaking, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. And no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad. Rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die young. In those days, people will live in the houses they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees. Imagine redwoods and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard won gains. They will not work in vain and their children will not be doomed to misfortune for they are people blessed by the Lord and their children, too, will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me while they are still talking about their needs. I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The snakes, they'll eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. So the the text begins with a description that, that might sound familiar. A new heaven... And a new earth. It's interesting that this description was spoken hundreds of years before Jesus came. And where perhaps we're most familiar with this description of what God is doing, this new world, is actually from the book of Revelation, which happens a hundred years or so after Jesus' birth. And and so we see that this was such a powerful image for John, for God's people, that he adopts this language to say, God is doing something amazing. He's doing something new and improved. And and he is creating this restored world and this new creation. And, And there's four elements And then a description that concludes that kind of guide our thinking in this. And the first thing that this new world has is joy. Joy. Do you remember when your first child was born or your first grandchild or your first great grandchild? The first are always important, right? They're all important. But that's our first opportunity to express this love. And as we're rocking them to sleep or we're looking at them in their crib or we're enjoying just being quiet with them resting on our chest and we'll sing and we'll sing a lullaby or we'll sing some little crazy ditty that doesn't make any sense. And they'll just enjoy being in our presence. And scripture says that that's what God does to us. He sings over us like a parent sings over their child. He rejoices not only in what we are, but he rejoices to be our parent. There's no greater joy for God than the innocent joy of having his child, his son, or his daughter close. It reminds us of the kind of joy that a man or woman feels when they see their bride or their 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 future husband or wife walking down that aisle It's a joy that sometimes erupts in tears it definitely erupts in a huge smile and and it's just a joy that flows and fills to overflowing jeremiah thirty two forty one refers to God rejoicing over all the good things he's going to do. And he gets so excited when he thinks, oh, I can't wait to unleash this. And I can't wait for them to see this. Much like parents on the eve of a child's birthday, thinking, man, when they see this cake, when they see this gift, when they see this special thing that I have for them, the parent almost takes more joy and delights in it as much if not more than the child himself. Zephaniah 3.17 is the verse, if you want to look at it later, that talks about God rejoicing over his people with singing. Zephaniah 3.17. And so that's what this image of this new creation looks like. This new heaven and the new earth begins with joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And then there's a transition about what we're not going to experience. We won't experience the sound of weeping and crying. And this is the beginning of a series of concrete examples that explain part of what this new world will be. Now, keep in mind that these illustrations are chosen to help us connect with the picture that God is uh, painting. And so, He's going to use terminology that might sound a little bit strange. He's going to say, No longer will babies die when only a few days old. The percentages of infant mortality in the ancient world were extremely high. Estimates run around anywhere from one out of four children or sometimes in some cases and in some cultures, one out of two. Didn't make it past the first couple days and years of life. And, and, And then he says, no longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. And how do they describe a full life? No longer will people be considered old at 100 You know, they say that 40 is the new 30, and then you get to some point, but but no one ever says that 100 is the new 20. (laughs) But in this new world and in this new creation, anyone who dies before 100, at their funeral, people will be saying, oh, he was so young, (laughs) just on the cusp of really breaking loose. Well, this whole talk about death is uh, a a bit surprising when we think about what's going to be in this new life. But the reality is that death is a unwanted passenger in all of our vehicles. We cannot go through life without feeling the pain and the weight and the heaviness of this dark passenger. We all have an expiration date. We don't know what it is, but it's stamped somewhere. And sooner or later, we'll hit that date. Now, from a theological standpoint, death is the antithesis of everything that God wants for us. Death is the result in the wages of sin. God wills that people might have life and have it abundantly, and death works diametrically opposed to God's purpose. And so in this new kingdom, no one will be dying over someone who has passed, whether they be young or whether they be old. And not only will there be no sorrow for people passing, you're going to have the opportunity in this new world to live in the house that you build. You see, people who had been oppressed like the Israelites for generation after generation would work hard on a house only to have it taken away by the master or taken away by another uh, uh, army they 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 would build they would plant the vineyards and tend to them and as these grapevines grew in their gnarled kind of beautiful way with all the leaves and the grapes and, and then only to to have someone come along and say okay you're out and I'm going to take this and so one of the pictures of this new life is that you're actually going to be able to eat the grapes off the trees and the plants that you've planted you're going to live in the house that you built all of your efforts and your hard work are going to be uh, uh, experienced by you yourself. You're going to live as long as a tree Does that sound appetizing to you. <laughs> I don't know how long most trees live, but if you think about the redwoods and the sequoias out in uh, California, they live thousands of years. And that's the image of something stable and sturdy. And rather than the tears of of frustration and futility, there will be the opportunity to enjoy our hard-won gains. We won't work in vain. Our children won't be doomed to hunger. We're all going to enjoy the blessedness of the Lord. And then in verse 24, we see something that's just even more astounding. You know, we all have a, I would say, we all have a love-hate relationship with prayer. It's one of those things we need to do and we know we need to do it, but it's kind of like exercise. Just because we need to do it doesn't mean that we're going to. Prayer is one of those things where sometimes it can be the most exhilarating thing that we experience and sometimes the most maddening, frustrating thing that we can experience. It seems sometimes that God is far off, that he's not answering, he's not listening, he's not paying attention. It seems that sometimes we're just talking to ourselves, and that discourages, discourages us from really participating. Well, in this new kingdom, in this new creation, in the new heaven and the new earth, God will answer our prayers before we even say them. God will know. And he'll already not only uh, uh, hear us before we speak, but he'll answer before we speak. And the point is that God is going to be so in touch with us and us with him. That that intimacy and that communication will be taking place on a permanent basis. And then to kind of just poke a little bit of fun at where our world is. The wolf and the lion are going to frolic together the wolf and the lamb, and then the lion's going to become a vegetarian. (laughs) Now, what kind of world can you imagine where that's going to take place? It's just a, and you know, if this was written today, I think Isaiah would say rather than the wolf and the lamb, he might say something like, and the elephant and the donkey will feed together and get along and be joyful. All the sources of weeping are gone. Even snakes. Now, snakes are not in Revelation, but here again, painting the picture, going back to the garden. The snake is still where he's always been on the ground eating dirt. It's where he belongs. And I don't know if there's any snake lovers among us. And if so, I'm sorry. (laughs) But. Uh, uh, the scriptures indicate that that's where the serpent will be. So this picture of, uh, 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 of this new creation, this new heaven and this new earth was given to people in the midst of their despondency, in the midst of their futility, in the midst of their frustration. And it was given to give them hope of a new world that's coming. And so as we think through kind of what that looks like for us, let me suggest in the first place that what we need to do is, first of all, before anything else, is we need to experience the new creation within us. Before we can be the new creation out there, we have to experience the new creation in our life. And that means letting God heal those broken places in our heart. Letting God heal those broken places in our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And that's the work that God wants to do. First, we become a part of that new creation through the healing power of Jesus' blood washing over and working through all of our sins, the ones that we've committed and the sins that have been worked against us. The times that we need forgiveness and the times we need to forgive. All of that is part of that restorative process. But, but then beyond that, we have the opportunity once we've experienced this new creation to form together with other individuals who are also experiencing this new creation to then be a model to the world of what this new creation could look like when we come together. And so this church is an outpost of what that new creation looks like. And that puts a little bit of a burden on us. First, we have the burden individually to experience and live this new creation. But now we have the task of showing the world what it looks like when God lives in us. And so what that means, church, is that if there's any place on this earth where Republicans and Democrats and independents can get together, it better be church. If there's any place where natives and immigrants can get together, it's church. If there's any place where gender roles and men and women and young and old and sinners and saints should be able to get along in peace and harmony, it ought to be church. If there's any place where people of different races and different languages and different cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic socioeconomic backgrounds, if there's any place where those groups of individuals that in the world tend to divide themselves, if there's any place where those people can get together, it has to be here. It has to be here. Because if we can't do it here, we can't do it anywhere. And if we can't show the world that this is what Jesus will do, will help us to break those barriers down, then, 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 then we haven't demonstrated his power in our lives. Saint Augustine once said, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. We are part of this new creation and then we show it. I, I like reading Anne Lamott. She's not the most, uh, uh, um, uh, what would be the proper word? She's not the most sacred of religious writers. <laughs> and so if you read anything that she's written, uh, you, just be prepared. Um, In her book, Stitches, she tells a story of a sparrow lying in the street with its legs straight up in the air, sweating a little bit under the feathery arms, as if it was hard work. A war horse comes up, looks at the bird, says, What in the world are you doing? The sparrow replies, I heard the sky was falling. And I wanted to help. The horse lets loose a big horse laugh. Says, do you think you're going to hold back the sky with your scrawny little sparrow legs? And the sparrow answers, one does what one can. One does what one can. And when we do what we can, we're never assured of the ultimate impact it can make. But when we follow Jesus and we follow his example of eating with sinners and saints, with Samaritans and tax collectors, with people of different uh, racial backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic socioeconomic levels, when, when we follow Jesus with that kind of faith, a small seed can become a mighty oak, a sequoia, a redwood that can live for thousands of years. One does what one can. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We say no to the things that harm. We say yes to the things that build up and that draw us closer to God. And by the grace of God, we wait for the appearing of that new kingdom, that new heaven and that new earth. If there's a way that we can pray with you and for you in this process, we'd love to do so. Uh, uh, Paul Schwepp will be one of our elders, will be up here at the front to receive you. I invite you to stand and sing, and uh, may God bless you.